Hey, this is Joshua Brown, lead pastor here at Dream Church. Thank you for tuning in to the podcast, and we hope you enjoy this week's message. The Lord gave me, go to 1 Kings 19, but the Lord gave me something this morning on the way here. You all normally know how that works. Um, I, uh, have you all seen The Chosen? I Actually, I watched the first episode. Have you all seen that? Okay, really good. Um, but... Uh, I thought it was interesting. There's obviously some stuff in that that is uh, added for the show, Um, like when uh, Mary is being told Isaiah 43 when she's a kid. Obviously, that's not in Scripture, but it might have happened. I don't know. Um, But there's something really interesting in that story or in that, you know, show is uh, she gets to the end. I'm not going to spoil it. Maybe I will, actually. Jesus shows up, and he he quotes the verse that she, you know, in the show was told, um, as, as a kid, and so, but there's something that really went, and I think maybe you told me this, but uh, when he looks at her and says, you are mine, uh, man, I don't know, that just hit me, so I was, I was on the way here this morning, and uh, just worshiping on the way, and doing some praying, and the Lord brought me back to Isaiah 43, and, um, and so I'm just going to read, I'm just going to read this, it actually, ironically, not ironically at all, goes uh, great with 1 Kings 19. So don't turn there, just, just listen to this. <clears throat> In fact, let me back up to Isaiah 42, and, um, and so we can get the full context. So, um, so here we go. Isaiah 42, uh, verse 18, he says, Hear me, you deaf, look up, you blind, and see, who is blind as my servant Israel, or as deaf as the messenger I send. Who is blind as my covenant friend, as blind as Yahweh's servant. Israel, you have seen so much, but you don't get it. You have been taught so much, but what did you really hear? For the sake of his righteousness, Yahweh was eager to exalt his law and make it glorious. But this is a people, talking about Israel, this is a people plundered and robbed, Trapped in holes and hidden in houses of bondage. They are like prey that no one will rescue. Like spoil with no one to say, bring them back. Doesn't anyone understand this? Will any of you pay attention to this in the future? Who gave up Jacob to looters and Israel to robbers? It was Yahweh himself against whom we sinned. By not walking in holy ways or heeding holy words. So he poured out the, uh, excuse me, so he poured out the heat of his anger and they suffered the fury of war. His anger enveloped them in flames, but they still did not understand. Consumed by fire, yet they did not take it to heart. Isaiah 42 ends, and then this is where it picks up Isaiah 43. Like I say all the time, the numbers in your Bible are not divine. So uh, Isaiah didn't say, awesome, Isaiah 43, verse 1. Um, so, consumed by fire, yet they did not take it to heart. Now, this is what Yahweh says in response to this. Listen, Jacob, to the one who created you. Israel, to the one who shaped who you are. Do not fear. Man, I'm going to cry right off the top. Did you... Isaiah 42 ends... 
with him saying, he gave them chance after chance after chance after chance after chance. You've seen so much, but you didn't get it. You've been taught so much, but what did you really hear? I didn't want to send you through wars and losing and the fury of war and enveloped in flames. He didn't want to, but because they refused to understand, he had to allow them to walk through the consequences of what they refused to understand. Okay? So he's talking about his people that have completely turned away from him. And this is how he responds. He says, listen to the one who shaped you. Don't fear. For I, your kinsman redeemer, will rescue you. I have called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the deep, stormy sea, you can count on me to be there for you and with you. When you pass through the raging rivers, you will not drown. When you walk through persecution like fiery flames, you will not be burned. The flames will not harm you, for I am your Savior, Yahweh, your mighty God, the Holy One of Israel. I gave up Egypt as the price to set you free. Cush and Seba in exchange to bring you back. Since you are cherished and precious in my eyes. This is the same group of people that he was just talking about in Isaiah 42. Since you are cherished and precious in my eyes because I dearly love you and want to honor you. The word honor there is kabod, which is glory. So he's saying, uh, because I love you dearly and want to bestow my glory upon you. I willingly give up nations in exchange for you, a man to save your life. That word right there for man is the Hebrew word, Adam. Okay? Jesus came as who? The last Adam. I willingly give up nations in exchange for you, and the last Adam to save your life. What? Why? Man, I read, that's what I read that, and I'm like, are we talking about the same people? Because they don't deserve that. And then I realize, wait a minute, I don't deserve that. You know what I'm saying? He don't stop there. Just listen. Let me finish up this, this, just this section. I am with you now, even close to you, so never yield to fear. I will bring your children from the east, from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, hand them over. And to the south, don't hold them back. Bring me my sons from far away, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Bring me everyone who is called by my name, the ones I created to experience my glory. I myself formed them to be who they are and made them for my glory. Man, but I, I, I'm just, I, I was reading this this morning in many different translations. I was reading this this morning, and I, I just, I had to stop because there is a point where we have to realize um, the error of our ways, which in America are many errors of many ways, okay? 
But, but there's also a point when you have to understand that's not where he's, he doesn't stop at pointing out where we've been wrong. Do you know what I'm saying? He points out where we've been wrong so that he can say, don't fear, I've called you by my name, by name, and you are mine. You, you, I think about Veda, I thought about, she was, she was in here a second ago, but I thought about Veda, and if somebody had taken her or somebody had done something to her, my response as a dad would be, that's my kid. And when I say that, I'm not just saying that's mine. When I say that, I mean, I'm bringing everything I got against you because that's mine. You know what I'm saying? And I can just see him because the enemy has infiltrated into Israel, perverted their minds, caused them to turn to idols, all, et cetera, et cetera. He comes to them and he says, I imagine him saying this. He says, this is my people who I formed and I named and they are mine. In other words, every person who's laid a finger on my people, let me just tell you, they're mine. Every sickness that has touched my people, let me just go ahead, there is mine. Every job loss, I mean, you, you just go down. Every, every marriage that's been destroyed, every abused child, every, go straight, they are mine. <laughs> I, your kinsman, redeemer, will rescue you. I, I don't know, I just, before we go into 1 Kings 19, um, I was just reading that this morning, and I, just, I feel the Lord wanting to remind us of a few things, because we've been, let me just be honest with you, I've been wrestling back and forth with the past couple months. Um, they've been great, I've enjoyed resting, I love being around my family, so that's been awesome. Um, and if you've struggled with being around your family the past couple of months, that needs to be dealt with, Right? But, um, so many people are like, man, I can't, get, I can't wait to get away from my kids. Can't wait to get, I can't wait to get back to work because me and my wife have been... And let me tell you, if, if, that, if that's our attitude in America, shouldn't have had kids. Sorry, but you got them, and your job is to honor your family and lead them. I don't know who that's for, just take that, that's free. But... I'm, it just fired me. You know what I mean? Just, just people like, man, man, this has been the worst. I'm like, being around your kids has been the worst? What they're really saying is, I haven't been able to be on Facebook as much. I've had to actually play with my kids. And, man, I can't wait to get back to work so I can spend half the day scrolling on Facebook. Let's be real. That's, that's 90% of people's complaints. Okay? Stop posting on Facebook. Delete the Facebook app and be present in reality. That is not reality. So get off of it. All right. So... I mean, I'm just, you know what I mean? Like, we got kids that are being raised up thinking dad and mom are distant, and we wonder why they think Yahweh's distant. You know what I mean? Mom and dad weren't present, so forgive me when I try to attach a papa or dad title to God and think that he's distant. You know what I'm saying? Veda will never know a dad that is distant. You know why? Because if it costs me everything, I'm going to be present. So some of you, a lot of y'all don't have kids yet. Some of y'all have babies. You know what I'm saying? But like when, when you have a kid, your life goes from all my hopes and dreams to legacy. And if it includes your hopes and dreams, great. 
But legacy now becomes your primary pursuit, not hopes and dreams and hope legacy comes along in the process. I grew up in a ministry mentality around the churches I grew up in that said, we're going to travel all over the place. We're going to do all this stuff for the ministry. We're going to be at the church 80 hours a week. We're going to do all this stuff. And then all the kids grow up and you know what they do? Turn away from the Lord, homosexuality, on drugs, wondering why the Lord is X, Y, and Z that he's actually not, but they thought he was because of how they grew up, etc. And we find ourselves in a bunch of mess in the church, not because the Lord did anything, but because parents haven't been parents. If we had dads present in households, we wouldn't have to worry about homosexuality, ever. Ironically, I drove, why, why? Ironically, I drove through downtown this, this, uh, this morning, and it's, I guess it's Pride Month again. We have more Pride Months than, I mean, I mean seriously, I was driving, uh, it's like Pride Month. I was like, man, I thought it was last month. You know what I'm saying? That's not a knock. But, I'm dri- so I'm driving, I'm like, man, Pride comes before the fall, so I'd be real, but anyway, so many emails, <laughs> But I, lo- I love you. Like, we, we've got to stop for a second. You know what I'm saying? I, th- see, when it's small like this, I feel like I can just be me and not have to worry about it. I don't know who's watching on Facebook. So uh, that's the beauty of this. Um, anyway, I'm driving through downtown, and I'm seeing this. I'm seeing all the rainbow stickers and all that stuff all over the place and uh, all the billboards. And I stop, and he reminds me of Isaiah 43, and he's saying, not he's coming to destroy us because of this. He's coming to remind us of who we actually are. You know what I'm saying? He's not coming to say, you're judged because you're gay, or you're judged because you had an abortion, or you're judged because of what you did last night. That's not what he's coming to do. He's coming to say, that's not who you are, you're mine. You know what I mean? Massive difference. But how does that change? Because now we are resting in the reality that I am his rather than trying to earn something that's called, I might be his if I'm good enough. You know what I mean? And so for years, for years, me personally, I'll just speak for myself, every single time I would uh, do something I shouldn't be doing or skip a day read my Bible or whatever, I would try to make up for it the days after because I thought that's how I was earning a spot in Him. Now, hopefully, we're at the point where a lot of us have begun to realize you already have a spot reserved in Him that you couldn't possibly lose if you wanted to. You know? And so the hope that's coming out of this past couple of months is not, man, I wonder, I wonder what the Lord was, was that judgment? Was that the devil? Was that, ex, like, doesn't matter. We are his. That's all that matters. And so looking ahead into the future, I don't need to know why this happened. All I need to know is I am his, and if I'm his, anything that was meant for my bad, he will turn around and give me a hundredfold in good. So bring it on. Pandemic, bring it on, because I'm just tallying stuff up. You know what I mean? I, and I hope y'all are too. I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious. Julie lost, lay, laid off for a little bit. I, don't sit back and take that. You say, I was laid off. I expect a job with better pay coming out of this. You, you know what I mean? Why? Because I'm his. And he told me I was the head and not the tail. The first and not the last, above only, not belief, the beneath, 
the lender and not the borrower. So that's what he claimed me as. I'm his, and that's my inheritance. You know what I'm saying? So you're not just going to get your job back. You need to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to get my job back. I'm going to get it back with interest. Because what the devil meant for bad, he'll turn around and use for my good. Joseph was sold into slavery, put in prison, forgotten about for years, nothing. And then all of a sudden, the servant remembers, man, you know what? There's this guy that interprets dreams. He's in prison. Why don't you call him up? He might be able to interpret your dream, Pharaoh. Pharaoh calls him up. He interprets the dream and becomes the leader of the whole country, Joseph. So the Lord didn't just say, you know what? I'm going to free you. Because that would be an equal recompense for his slavery. His brother sold him into slavery. So if the Lord was going to redeem him being sold into slavery, he would have been freed. But the Lord said, no, that's not enough. I'm not just going to free you. I'm going to make you lead this bad boy. So now Joseph is able to provide for Jacob. Why? Because the Lord came around and said, I'm not just going to, I'm going to give you everything back with interest that the enemy stole from you. That's where we get that verse. Genesis 50, verse 20. Everything the enemy meant for bad, God has turned around and used for my good. So I believe what we're in right now is a season where the Lord is not just going to, and i got to stop saying, the Lord's not going to bring us back to where we were. The Lord is going to take us far beyond where we were because of this past two months. And it has nothing to do with anything we've done. It has everything to do with him saying, they are mine. Their church isn't going to fail because of this. I'm actually going to send them into the next level of glory because of this. So enemy, I'd be real careful. I, I mean, see, I'm just go ahead and put you on. I'll be very careful with the next few steps you take. Because he's, he's keeping track. And the devil is defeated, and if he's defeated, he has no issue, he has no authority to do anything in us anyway. So, uh, let's go to 1 Kings 19. I'm going to read, that was all just, just spontaneous. So, I'm going to read uh, something I've been writing, and then we'll go to 1 Kings 19, uh, one of my favorite um, chapters in the Old Testament. I love this. <clears throat> 1 Kings 19. Um, I believe the past couple of months have revealed many things in the life of believers and in the church as a whole. One thing that I believe may link all of them together, yet no one is talking about, is the, what I, the susceptibility of believers to what we normally call seasons. Believers are high when things are good, circumstantially, and typically low when things are bad, circumstantially. So this, we bear fruit and share the gospel and pray for people and show up to church and serve at church and tithe when we're in a good season. But we bear no fruit, we don't share the gospel, we don't pray for people, we don't show up to church, we don't serve, and usually don't tithe when we're in a bad season, what the church would normally call a storm. Okay, some people out there. Always got to keep an eye out. You never know who's going to walk in. <clears throat> All right? The word storm, I just had this little, little note, has been used in the postmodern church more than Christ himself. You hear that every single week. Every worship song, every sermon, every graphic for a sermon. We might be going through storms, but the Lord is good. 
what? What's go- what gospel is that? I mean, Jesus, Jesus didn't ride in a boat through a storm saying, it's all right, the Lord's good. He said, hush, and it stopped. Why? Because, I mean, storms can't be present where the Messiah is present. So if we're preaching storms, really got to start asking ourselves, is the Messiah present enough for us to be non-susceptible to storms anymore? Why do we use this word so much? Because we can relate to storms when we're still susceptible to them. We can only relate to Christ when we are elevated to the seat where storms are actually under our feet. In today's church, for me to say, I'm like Christ, is considered blasphemy, though it's bathed in Scripture. Hey, guys. We, see, we tricked everybody. We started with a message today. We, we just tricked everyone. Um, I can't wait till some people show up like 1045. Like, wait a minute. Um, I know, yeah, some of y'all haven't even t- tuned into the live stream yet, thinking about it, right about 11, he'll start preaching, so I'll click on there. Gotcha. Um, in fact, at 11, we might just do tithing just to catch everybody. That's a joke. I'm just playing. All right. In today's, seriously, in today's church, for me to say I am like Christ is considered blasphemy. Though it is bathed in Scripture. You can find that. And I can give you a hundred verses right now to say I am like Christ and you are like Christ. All in Scripture. Yet it's considered blasphemy. That I've been, I've been, I've been I don't, not persecuted. I've been emailed more or talked to more about the fact that I think I'm like Christ than anything else I've ever said. And yet, that's all the New Testament is about. Okay? For me to say I'm susceptible to circumstances today is celebrated, yet found nowhere in Scripture. Think, just think for a second. If I go into any church today and say, uh, hey, just letting y'all know, I'm like Christ, you guys are like Christ, we should live like it. it, it I might be killed. I mean, that's, that's being sarcastic, but, but you know what I mean? People don't like that. But if I went to a church and said, man, I'm really going through a storm right now, but I'm hanging on. The anchor holds, though the ship is battered. Did y'all ever sing that growing up? Lord, help us all. You know what I mean? The anchor holds, though the ship is battered. I'm not battered at all. I mean, the anchor definitely holds. But I ain't battered. And I ain't flying away either. But, why, why do we, but seriously, just think for a second. Why, why do we do that? If I, if I called you tomorrow and said, you know what, I'm really going through a storm right now, you'd be like, yeah, man, me too. You know what I'm saying? But if I called you tomorrow and said, hey, like, what have we done today that's like Christ? It'd be like, well, all right, now that's, that's not for today. Right? Could you, uh, Spencer, could you do me a favor? Could you go into my book bag and grab my uh, black Bible? I forgot to bring it up today. Um, just unzip the main part, and it's the... Um, well, there's a couple of black Bibles, but it's the little one. It's got, like, soft leather. Uh, no, journal. Um, yeah, that's it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, just, just let me just indulge me, indulge me for a second, all right? Psalm 1, Psalm 1. We're going to go to 1 Kings 19. This is all going to make sense when I start reading 1 Kings 19. Elijah has a little case of the uh, crazies in 1 Kings 19. So um, 
But listen to this. He says, David, what Spencer read this a couple weeks ago. What delight comes to the one who follows God's ways? He won't walk in step with the wicked, nor share the sinner's way, nor be found sitting in the scorner's seat. His pleasure and passion is remaining true to the word of I am, meditating day and night in the true revelation of light. Listen. He will be standing firm like a flourishing tree planted by God's design, deeply rooted by the brooks of bliss. This is it. Bearing fruit in every season. So in other words, seasons are no longer an issue. It don't matter if it's winter, summer, spring, fall. He's bearing fruit or she. He is never dry, never fainting, ever blessed, and ever prosperous. So is it sometimes or ever? Ever. Okay? All right. Well, Josh, that's, you know, that's just one place in Scripture. Awesome. Psalm 37, verse 18 and 19 says this. Day by day, let me back up to 17. For the Lord takes care of all his forgiven ones, which is everybody in this room, I'm assuming. If not, be born again. It'd be, it's awesome. Um, for the Lord takes care of all his forgiven ones, while the strength of the evil will surely slip away. Day by day, the Lord watches the good deeds of the godly, and he prepares for, his, for them his forever reward. Listen to this. Even in time of disaster, he will watch over them, and they will always have more than enough, no matter what happens. I, I mean, um, amazing. Matthew 7, let me just read one more thing. Matthew 7, very familiar, starting in verse 24, says this. Everyone who hears my teaching and applies it to his life can be compared to a wise man who built his house on an unshakable foundation. If it's unshakable, can it be shaken? No, okay? It's the word unshakable means it is not shakable. When the rains fell, so this is a storm. When the rains fell and the flood came with fierce beating winds upon his house, it stood firm because of its strong foundation. But everyone who hears my teaching and does not apply it to his life can be compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. When the rain came, it rained and flood, and the flood came with wind and waves beating upon his house, and it collapsed and was swept away. When the rains fell, the floods came, fierce winds beating upon the house, it stood firm. Why? Because of the strong foundation. Okay? So, if somebody says, I'm really walking through a storm right now, we should respond and we should live in the sense that says, who cares? We're, we're firm. We're ever blessed. We're ever prosperous. We're a fruit bearing. We're a tree bearing fruit in every season. Our leaves are never withering. We're never dry, and we're never faint. So it can be sunny or it can be stormy. That does not move me. You know what I mean? Not well, brother, man. I, me too. Glad you're going through it with me. You know what I'm saying? And 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 I know people walk through stuff. I like that's not. I'm not trying to say people aren't walking through stuff. I'm not saying storms aren't going to come. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying it doesn't matter if they come because you're firm in the fact that Isaiah 43 says, you are mine. 
So if a storm comes, you're not protecting yourself. He is protecting what's his. If a pandemic comes, you're not protecting yourself. He is protecting who is his. If we find ourselves being battered and beaten by storms, Jesus himself said that's not an issue with God because it's typically what we'd like to do. Man, I'm really walking through it. Lord, why? And nine times out of ten, no, I'm, I'm going to keep it right there. If we say, Lord, why? Okay, here's exactly why. Everyone who hears teaching but does not apply it to his life can be compared to a foolish man who built his house on sand. Little back, if you build your house on sand, that means it has no foundation. Okay, so you're building a house without a foundation is what he's saying. Okay, when it rained, flood came, winds came, waves beat upon it, and what did it do? It collapsed and was swept away. There's one translation, and I think it's the message. Um, this sounds like the message. But there's one translation right here that says, when the waves came, it collapsed like a house of cards. Yeah, I think it's definitely got to be the message, right? So, the great thing about a storm is that it reveals the true foundation of the house. If it storms and you're steady, it reveals that you've built your house on the rock. If it storms and you're shaken, that reveals you've built your house without a foundation. Okay? So that's why the news can, for two months, say, this is the worst, this is, everybody's going to die, our nation's doomed, Donald Trump is the Antichrist, you know, all that stuff. And what do we do? Buy right into it. Why? Because we build our house on the sand. And every little wind that comes by moves us to and fro. James 1. A double-minded man, the waves toss him to and fro. How can he expect anything? How can he respect, expect to receive anything in that state? Right? So, but I've noticed a huge difference in the past couple of months. There are those who are shifting with every wind of doctrine and every wind of news cycles and every wind of circumstance. But then there's those who are firm. You don't see them shaking you don't see them turning to the right or to the left. They're just steady. If we have church, if we don't have church, I'm going to be steady. If it goes away or it stays the next three years, I'm going to be steady. You know what I mean? If I lose my job, if I don't lose my job, if the government gives me a stimulus or they don't give me a stimulus or I don't apply for the stimulus or I don't get the stimulus, I'm going to be steady. Right? Because it's not Donald Trump that says they are mine. It's Yahweh, the creator of your life, who knit you together in your mother's womb that says they are mine. And he is not susceptible to the United States economy. And definitely not susceptible to Democrats. And yet a lot of people feel like they are. If Joe, man, if boy, if Joe Biden wins, boy, watch out. And I, well, I, don't, I don't know why I say that in the country. Just tip, you know, boy, boy bear, bear watch out for that Joe Biden, man. I ain't watching out for anybody. Yahweh is the one who designs and leads my life and has every single day of your and my life written in his book before one of them came to be. So whoever is president, that's great. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm just saying it really doesn't matter. If, if Joe Biden wins, you know what I'm going to be? Steady. Even unbelievers are happy and joy-filled when things are great. 
takes, that takes no faith. Even people who are atheists, when life is great and their income is great and they have a good job and everything's falling into line, they're happy. Right? But when the rain comes and your house hasn't moved, that's when the image bearers look a lot different than the rest of the world. So unless, unless there are storms, there's no dividing of image bearers and non-image bearers. Right? I mean, there's spurts. Like if you pray for, for somebody who is sick and they recover, you look a lot like Jesus in that moment. So, so there are spurts of that. But when a pandemic comes, you find out real quick who is an image bearer and who is a pretender and who is just somebody who doesn't care at all. Right? And the unfortunate thing, which I believe the Lord is changing, is that there's only a handful that fit into that category in the past few months. I mean, very few. There's a lot of people who fit into the middle category, and then there's a lot who fit into the other. I believe the Lord is shifting that. So today, I believe it's time to finish. This is something I'm, I'm like, I've, I've been calling it this. If you want to call it something else, you can. Circumstantial susceptibility. In other words, you're shifted by circumstances, okay? Today, I believe the Lord wants to finish that in us. So, let me just give a couple definitions, and then we'll go to 1 Kings 19 finally. Circumstantial susceptibility, that I've been calling, is the poison of consistency. So, as long as your consistency is based on your circumstances, you'll never be consistent. For your circumstances are always changing. Does that, are y'all with me? Do I need to read that again? Yeah, Morgan's like, no. <laughs> right? Please. Thanks, Morgan. Appreciate it. Um, cir- circumstantial susceptibility is the poison to consistency. As long as your consistency is based on your circumstance, you'll never be consistent because your circumstances are never consistent. Inconsistency, then, is the poison of legacy. Okay? Why do I talk so much about legacy? Because the only way you can call this, legitimately call this revival, is if it's still going on in three generations, and four generations, and five generations. You cannot legally or biblically call anything revival if it ends when the first generation dies. That's not revival. Revival is something being revived. So if it dies with the ones who were working to revive it, it was never revived. So we've actually never tasted true revival in America ever. We've tasted outpourings of the Spirit that were poorly stewarded and ended with generations. But we've never had a generation to steward correctly the outpouring of the Spirit where we hand it off to the next generation and they not only have what we have, but they actually have a double portion of what we have. That's never happened. If it did, we wouldn't be in this room trying to do this, what we're doing today. This room would be packed with people who were in the presence of Almighty God on the floor in fear and trembling, knowing that the only way we have access to come before the throne in boldness is because He chose us as His own and knit us together in our mother's womb and called us by name before we ever took a breath. And so I'm in here this morning, and we're just having this spontaneous playing back and forth and stuff like that. And it hits me in a moment that what we are doing right here is what P- 
people generation after generation and prophets and the early church leaders who were put to death and martyred is what they gave their lives for was for a group of people who could actually freely, without being shot in the head for it, stand here in the presence of God and live our lives as a living sacrifice to the one who gave his life as a sacrifice so that we could live as living sacrifices. Right? He, he said, for a group of people, Israel, who were so lost, it would call to pe- the people today that we call lost, we would call them saved compared to where Israel was when Jesus actually came. Lost. And he didn't come and say, you know what, we're going to scrap this whole thing and start over. He didn't do that. You know what he did? He said, you know what, I'll give my life so that they can know what I think about them. And while he's on a cross and he's hanging there and he has the audacity to utter the words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Something has to strike in the heart of his own people in that moment that says, wait a minute. That's not a Pharisee. That's not a Sadducee. That's not one of the leaders that we've ever seen. That man is different. And then you better believe they knew something was different when three days later they saw that same man walking around town. Didn't we kill him three days ago? You know what I'm saying? Walking around fully, fully alive. In, in those 40 days, that G, this, this past Thursday was Ascension Day. Okay, So it was 40 days after Easter. It was the day they celebrate, um, especially in the Eastern world, when Jesus was ascended. I think we need to have some celebrations. We don't celebrate anything around here. We celebrate storms. You know what I mean? That's what we, but we, we don't celebrate anything. Most people didn't even know that Thursday was Ascension Day. Most people had no idea. You know why? Because it ain't that important to us. And Pentecost is coming next Sunday. I almost was like, hey, why don't we just spend the next 10 days, just see what happens. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we might do that. I don't know. (laughs) That kind of sounds good to me right now. But And then I look at some of y'all like, please, No. I mean, but I, the Lord's been asking me this. I promise I'm going to 1 Kings 19, but I started at 10, so i got a long time. All right? Um, but the Lord's been asking me, especially this week, um, but even yesterday, we, were, we went to the beach. I got scorched on my shoulders. Uh, I, so I have, like, really olive skin. I like to tell myself I'm part Jewish. Um, I don't know if that's true. I, th- I actually think I'm more, like, Native American part. But anyway, um, but... Because I have, like, olive skin, I usually don't get burnt. And so yesterday I was like, you know what? I ain't going to put on sunscreen. I'm good. It was like, it wasn't even that hot. And then we got home, and I uh, took my shirt off and was like, I mean, you see this book, how red it is? That's about what my shoulders look like, all right? Um, I guess I can make that a message. But anyway, uh, but I, I was spending some time with the Lord last night, just, you know, just me and him. I, I, especially at the end of the day, I like to just kind of, like, talk with the Lord after Jordan's fallen asleep and it's just like me I'm the only one awake we just start having these conversations and um and something that I realized was was very convicting to me is that there's a lot of points in my life I don't take this serious enough and I'm not saying like you know I should be walking around just like you know you know like that that type of serious but I am saying there's a lot of points in my life where I don't understand what I'm actually engaging in you know what I'm saying the the uh no one could just have a conversation with the Lord it took somebody completely pure 
one person to walk into the Holy of Holies in such a fear-filled moment that they had bells tied to their legs in case they died in the presence of the Lord, right? And that's how they met and talked with the Lord. Now, right now, I can just have a conversation with the Lord. In fact, even as I'm preaching this message, I'm hearing whispers, which was unheard of in the Old Testament. And I think a lot of times, because we have so much access to God, we forget what access to God means and what it took to get us access to God. You know what I mean? And, and I've been very convicted. This is just me. You can take this for whatever. But I'm telling you, for me, I've been very convicted because there's a lot of times where I'll just casually approach God, which is fine. You can casually approach the Lord. But there's a point where you get to where you approach Him in what fear and trembling. And that's not like you're afraid of the Lord, but it's you realize the awe and reverence of the moment when you're entering into the presence of the Lord that something in you says, I've got to get everything else out of the way because none of it matters compared to this moment. You know, and I think if we like prayer, prayer is boring to most Americans. Most Americans don't pray. They think it's boring because they think they're throwing up Hail Marys into outer space and hope something travels far enough to stick. You know what I mean? Growing up, I heard this phrase a lot that, uh, it's, he, that people would say, man, if you're in a, sea, in a storm right now where it seems like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling, like, man, there's a lot of stuff wrong with that. One, my prayers aren't going to the ceiling, first off. Secondly, why are you still susceptible to storms? But as in, in, the moment, in the moment when you're approaching Yahweh, and this is setting up 1 Kings 19, when you're approaching Yahweh casually, there's a lot of stuff that you'll miss out on, not because he doesn't want to give you, but because the only way you can inherit certain things in the kingdom is by understanding the magnitude of the things that you're actually inheriting. So what if he gave you a seed of something that you start dishonoring because it doesn't look like what you thought it should look like, rather than saying, Yahweh himself just gave me a seed, it must be important. You know, so when you pray for somebody and you don't see the immediate manifestation, do we say, well, I guess he doesn't want to do that today? Or do we say, he just planted a seed in them that in fear and trembling, he's going to bring a harvest out of? See, do you see the difference in that? So, 1 Kings 19. Um, oh, let me, let me just mention this real, too, real quick, too. How do we have a generational effect on the globe. Like, how do, how do we affect the entire globe until Jesus comes back and reigns with us forever? Here's what I believe. I believe it's Him making us immovable, and then we consistently feed from His living water, therefore always bear fruit, Psalm 1, bearing fruit in every season. So He makes us immovable. We bear fruit in every season. We're consistent. And then we begin to give birth, Genesis 1, of the same kind, which is a generation who is steady, consistent, and therefore hosts a greater measure of fruit than the previous generation. Consistency is key. Why? Genesis 1 gives us the blueprint for everything we need to know. All of it. In Genesis 1... He says, he gives the command and the capability to every living thing to reproduce of the same kind. I've taught this many times, okay? Therefore, whatever you are is the only thing that you can give birth to. Okay? With me? 
So if you have people, and I'm not talking about literal kids, you can apply that. I'm just talking about people that you're around. Like the only way you can give birth to a workplace that is transformed by the power of the gospel is for you yourself to be transformed by the power of the gospel. You can't give them what you don't have. So you've got to get what he wants to give you first, and then effortlessly you'll give everybody else what you're overflowing with. Right? So I believe what he wants to do is he wants to plant us and make us immovable. And then as we become immovable, we become consistent. And as we become consistent, we begin to bear fruit no matter what's going on around us. And then we begin to give birth to other people around us or literal give birth to babies that are of the same kind, which are immovable, consistent, and bearing fruit in every season. Right? So that's how we, how do you change the globe forever? You be immovable, you be consistent, you bear fruit in every season, and I promise you the glory of the Lord will begin to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So 1 Kings 19, I'm going to read it to verse 18. I'm going to stop and then we'll read, um, read the rest. It's a really short chapter compared to some of the others in the Old Testament. Hopefully you're there right by now. You had 45 minutes to get there. So Ahab, Ahab told Jezebel, verse 1, um, Ahab told Jezebel, how many of y'all were here last week? How many of y'all listened to the message last week? That was a trick question because some of y'all didn't raise your hand for either. Um, just playing. But Elijah comes off this grand moment. He's on the mountain. He calls down fire from heaven. He slaughters 450 prophets of Baal. He calls down rain again. I mean, like just this amazing faith-filled moment. Okay, This might be the most whiplash set of verses in the entire scriptures, okay? 18 ends with him calling down rain again from heaven. 19 verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he got up and fled for his life. What? And came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. See, beer is always the issue. No, I'm just, I'm, that's totally a joke. <laughs> just kidding, just trying to get a little break. All right. That's, a dad, that's what you call a dad joke right there. Um, then he was afraid. He got up, fled for his life, came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. So he's in Judah now. He left the northern kingdom. He's in Judah. Uh, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a solitary broom, uh, broom tree. He asked that he might die. It's a lot of irony there that he flees for his life, afraid that he will die. And then once he gets where he's going, he asks that he would die. If you wanted to die, just stay, right? He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, this is Elijah speaking. Take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree and fell asleep. Suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. 
He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked, excuse me, a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, so bread and water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him, and said, Get up and eat, otherwise the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank, and then he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Man, I love this, this set of verses right here. You ready? Now there was a great wind, so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire... A sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness. Most of your Bibles say, Go back the way you came. Of Damascus, when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel as king over Aram. You shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat of Abel-Mahola, as prophet in your place. Where Whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu shall kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall kill. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. I'm going to stop right here. Amazing, amazing, amazing stuff. Um, chapter 18, I just said this, but just to um, recap. Chapter 18 ends with Elijah in this great boldness. Calls down rain, runs ahead of Ahab. The difference, the Lord asked me this this week. He said, what was the difference between Elijah in 17 and 18 and Elijah in chapter 19? Does anybody got any idea? When I say this, you're going you're gonna to be like, oh, yeah. Okay, not spiritually, just, just reality. What, what was the difference between the reality of Elijah's life and the world around him in 17 and 18 versus 19? It was a storm. Yeah. 
chapter 17 and 18 was drought that Elijah had announced was going to be on the land. Chapter 18 ends with the rain falling again. And chapter 19 begins with Elijah not bold but fearing for his life. In 17 and 18, Elijah is so full of the power of Yahweh that he announces a three-year drought, tells King Ahab that he is a troubler of Israel, calls down fire from heaven, kills 450 prophets of Baal, and prays for and receives rain again in Israel. In chapter 19, he gets word that Jezebel wants him dead and runs for his life. And as I used to read this, I would read this and question, and I jokingly did earlier, but I would read this and be like, what is wrong with that dude? And then I realized, sounds a lot like me. There will be moments where I'm on top of the world, full of the power of the Lord, moving, praying for people, operating in the gifts, all that stuff. And then there's a moment where a storm begins to fall and all of a sudden I find myself afraid of the very things I was conquering in a season before the storm. You know, so in a season where the economy's exploding, everybody's giving, everybody's faithful, everybody's going to church, everything's awesome, but then a storm hits and the economy starts, going tank, starts tanking, and then all of a sudden we fear the very thing that we were awesome and we were loving and we were thriving in just before the storm. In February, the economy was pumping. In April, the economy is the worst since the Great Depression. Two months. Right? And so, in that storm season, we find people that on the other side of it, that before had no fear, now have a lot of fear. People prayed for the sick in January. Today, people won't come within 10 feet of a sick person. You know what I'm saying? And oh, that just got, here's the disclosure. I'm not telling you to go and not, you know, face coronavirus and all that stuff. If the Lord calls you to, great. But i got to say that so people won't sue us. So, okay? But... It's, it's just reality, right? Right? In February, people had no issue. And I need, I need to be really cautious. I'm not, this is, this is all valid if you're like waiting to come out of church and stuff like that. That's not what I'm saying. But in February, people were like, let's go to church. Let's rock and roll. Let's do it. In April, people are like, I don't think I'm going to go to church. And I'm not saying it's not valid. I'm just saying, what's the difference? What changed? A storm. Right? And I've struggled. I said this earlier. I didn't finish it until now, but I've struggled with the past couple of months because I think in the moment, in the moment, we responded, um, I responded to this in the best way I knew how and probably wouldn't change anything I did. But at the same time, I go back and I'm like, you know, how many of us in the church have, have also done things just strictly because we're afraid? You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying it was a wrong decision to, like, close church. If it happened again, we'd probably, you know, make, I don't know, but we would probably make the same decision. Maybe not. I don't know. But looking back, I've, I've really, I've had to say, like, Lord, what decisions did we make because it was the smart decision to make? And what decisions did we make as a country, as the church as a whole, and even as us, that were just afraid? 
And I know this is like, this hits, like, people are so high strung right now. And that's why I say get off Facebook. No one really cares what people have to say on Facebook and their opinion about mask or no mask anyway. But, like, get off of it. But, like, people are so high strung. People are so... We have church, people get mad because we're having church. We don't have church, people get mad because we don't have a church. you got other churches that people are like so mad because they don't understand why they can't go to church, but if they open the church, you'd have people that are so mad because they don't understand why people are spreading stuff. I mean, literally, that's, that's where we are. That's where we are. And I want to bless our leaders. I know a lot of people watch this that don't go to our church, and I think you're great, and I love you, but if you go to a church where you are a thorn in the side of your leader because of what's going on right now, in the name of Jesus, I say stop. That is not what you're called to do. You're called to honor. I don't, you don't have to agree. You don't have to agree with decisions that are made, but you do 100% have to honor, and you do 100% have to continue to tithe. Ouch. Right? Well, brother, well, brother, if y'all don't open the doors of this church in two weeks, I ain't going to tithe. You should probably find somewhere else. Because that ain't how we roll. Luckily, we don't have people like that. But I just want to encourage, like, I know a lot of people watch this. Like, we've got to be people of honor. They will know us by our unity. That's what Jesus, the last thing, they will, they will know your mind by your unity. A lot of people don't know that we're his because we are not unified. Okay, I'm chasing a lot of rabbits today. I just feel it. So, when it seemed favor was on his side, he was bold, Elijah. When it seemed favor had left him, he ran. So he runs for his life and asks Yahweh to take his life. Here's the irony. There are two people in the Old Testament that never tasted death. Enoch and Elijah. So the man who would actually never die is in a moment where he's asking the Lord that he would die. Think about this. Think about the grace of the Lord that he takes a man in a moment that is suicidal and makes him a man who is one of only two people in the Old Testament that never taste death ever at all. Right? In reality, did Elijah have anything to fear? No. He had just killed 450 prophets of Baal, and now he was afraid of one woman who was the leader of Baal worship in Israel. If anybody was going to be afraid of anything, it should have been the 450, not the one. So did he have anything to be afraid of? No. But circumstantially and circumstantial susceptibility will cause you to try and short circuit or bail on your purpose because in one moment it feels like you're no closer than you were at the beginning. How do I know this? Because in verse 10, when the Lord asked Elijah, what are you doing here? He responds, Israel had just turned back to the Lord. Fire fell, everybody fell on their face, and they said, the Lord indeed is God, the Lord indeed is God. They had turned back to the Lord. Right? But Elijah, when the Lord says, what are you doing here? He says, I've been zealous for the Lord. The Israelites have forsaken your covenant thrown down your altars, and killed all the prophets. He's, he's giving the Lord an account of a pre-verse chapter 18 Israel. 
Are y'all with me? So when he asks him that, Elijah responds in a way that's not even reality anymore in the moment because what do we do when we get in moments where we're being tossed and turned by storms? We start distorting reality against us. I had this uh, thought the other day. I do this. I'm the worst at this. How many of you, when you send somebody a text and they don't respond, you start, you just start chasing, did I say something to them? Maybe I did say something to them. Maybe they're mad at me. Maybe they don't like me. And like the longer it goes on, did anybody else do that? Okay, wow. Yeah, liars. Um, I'm just kidding. I used to do that a lot. I don't do that as much anymore because I'm usually the one that doesn't respond. Not because I don't love y'all. Just, I just forget. Um, but we do that. Or let's say you send somebody a text to say, hey, my son just got saved. And they respond, that's great, period. Okay? In reality, they're saying, that's great. Excited. Love it. Right? But, but in the moment, we start distorting stuff and saying, jerks. Like, I told them something great, and they were, they're not even happy. But do you know what I mean? Not because that's reality, but because we distort reality based on what we're walking through. Or based on the lens we're looking through. Okay? So Elijah, in this moment, is running for his life. And because he's in fear, he begins to give excuses to God that are no longer even reality for Israel. They had turned back to the Lord, and he's telling the Lord the reason he's running is because they haven't turned back to the Lord. Okay? So he runs into the wilderness. Elijah is, is fed by bread and water by an angel which provides him strength to go 40 days into the wilderness to Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb. Horeb and Sinai, same place. Uh, this is the same thing the widow in chapter 17 fed him in Zarephath. He goes to her and he says, give me some water and then give me some bread. Same thing. And it's the two things that Jesus Christ calls himself. He's in the wilderness and an angel feeds him bread and water. What does Jesus say? I am the bread of life, and the, the living water, okay? So, whoever drinks of me shall never thirst again. So he, he eats bread, drinks water. It gives him strength to go into the wilderness to the mountain of the Lord. This, I mean, if y'all aren't getting some of this stuff, this is awesome. When you go into the secret place, he gives you what you need to go to the place that you're called to go. So without... Without being fed of Jesus, let's just say, without being fed of Jesus, in the moment, he would not have had strength to go to the mountain of the Lord to hear a whisper that no one up to that point in history had ever heard. And it was all from a place called hidden. Here's the great part about this. He got to that place in a bad situation. He didn't say, you know what, I'm going to go out to the wilderness, I'm going to go to the mountain of the Lord, and I'm going to hear this. He was running for his life, but grace chased him down and said, well, while you're out here, let me show you something. Unbelievable. In order for Elijah to get from where he was in Judah to Mount Sinai, he had to travel through the same wilderness the Israelites wandered in for 40 years. I really, hey, if you're not paying attention to this, I need you to pay attention to just this next part, okay? I'm almost done. <laughs> In order for Elijah to go from Judah 
to Mount Sinai, he had to travel the same wilderness that the Israelites wandered in for 40 years. The Israelites went from Sinai to the promised land. Elijah went from the promised land to Sinai. He had to go the same route. What is Sinai? Sinai, Mount Sinai, and the cave that Elijah is sent to is the exact location that the Lord in Exodus meets with Moses to give him the law. And it's the same cave that in Exodus 33, the Lord Moses says, While I've got you in a good mood, let me see your glory. And the Lord says, I'm going to hide you here, and I'm going to let all of my goodness pass you by. The same cave. How cool is that? So Elijah goes from Judah to the mountain of the Lord to have an encounter at the mountain of the Lord that started the whole process of the Israelites getting into the promised land in the first place. <clears throat> why did Israelites wonder why did the Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years? They wandered due to fear of the inhabitants of the land. They feared the giants would kill them. So Yahweh sent them into the wilderness until a generation came up that wasn't moved by what they saw, but whose they were. So the wilderness was a place of dying. Dying to what? Fear of the inhabitants of the land. What land? Canaan. Elijah's running from Canaan. Why? What was Canaan? Why? Because he's afraid of the inhabitant Jezebel in the land. So he sends him through the wilderness of dying to fear so that he can die to the thing that has made him susceptible to circumstances around him. So the wilderness is a place of death. It's where an entire generation died because of unbelief, including Moses. The number 40, if you remember a few weeks ago, represents a change in age. So the fact that he went into the wilderness for 40 days represents Yahweh was pushing him into a new age. Yahweh was leading Elijah into the wilderness so that the susceptible pieces of him could die in order that Elijah may be shifted into a new age of glory, which we're about to find out is, by definition, legacy. Here's a funny fact. Jesus himself also went into the wilderness for 40 days to face every kind of temptation before his ministry began. That's Matthew 4, 1 through 11, okay? So Jesus went into the wilderness. Why did he go into the wilderness? This is going to be real. To deal with anything that needed to be dealt with before he ever preached a word of the gospel. If Jesus had to do that, and Elijah had to do that, maybe there are some things we're missing from a season in the wilderness that most of us despise. Most of us don't want to go into a season of the wilderness. If I said, if I said the Lord's going to send you into the wilderness and he's going to let some stuff in you die, you'd be like, no thanks. I'll take revival and fire and goodness. Ironically, the only way you get revival, fire, and goodness is to first go through the wilderness. So, I mean, so I, I, I really believe maybe the reason 
while we haven't tasted the fullness of what I know we're going to taste is because first the Lord wants to send the American church specifically into the wilderness so that everything that we've let live can die. He went to Mount Horeb, which is an alternative name to Mount Sinai. It's the mountain where the Lord met Moses. This is the mountain that it says in Scripture that the Lord talked with Moses mouth to mouth as a friend talks to a friend. The same mountain the Lord spoke with Moses, met with Moses, not face to face as the English says. The Hebrew is mouth to mouth. Met with, can you imagine that? The Lord grabbing you and putting you lip to lip and speaking to you. And every word, the breath of life that breathed uh, breath into Adam's nostrils is breathing into you with every word. With every word of the covenant, breath of life is being breathed into you. That was Moses' encounter. Elijah goes to the same place to meet with the same Yahweh, to be hidden in the same cave, to have the same encounter, except this time Yahweh's going to show up in a different way. He tells Yahweh, Elijah, that he's been zealous for the Lord, which in Hebrew literally means he's been exclusive in devotion. So he goes to the Lord and says, I've exclusively been yours. Why am I walking through this? Is what he's saying. And that word, when he says he's been zealous for the Lord, is the same exact word the Lord uses for himself as being jealous toward Israel. So, When the Lord speaks of himself towards us, he is zealous towards us. What does that mean? He's exclusive in devotion toward us. He's exclusively yours. He's exclusively yours and yet is everybody's. Right? So when you're meeting with the Lord, you're not getting pieces of him. You're getting the whole package. He's exclusive to you. Me and Jordan are exclusive to each other. At least I hope. You know, I'm just kidding. Right? So Jordan and I are exclusive to each other. What does that mean? I'm not dating anybody else or talking to anybody else or whatever, and she's also not. Why? Because I'm giving all of what I have to her, and she's giving all of what she has to me. That's the relationship we have with the Lord. So, the Lord shows up, But there's three things that happen before the Lord shows up that he's actually not found in. Okay? We have a great wind. Are y'all still with me? Y'all still good? We have a great wind, which the Lord isn't in. There's an earthquake, which the Lord is not in. There's a fire, which the Lord is not in. And then, in my translations, some of yours, most of yours probably say a whisper. But the actual Hebrew is, it's the sound of sheer silence. And he finds the Lord in the silence. I, I mean, I, I, wonder, I wonder how many times the Lord has shown up to me in silence, and I've not heard a thing because I expected him to show up in an earthquake. God had revealed himself. Am I almost done? Yeah, I'm almost done. God had revealed himself in wind, earthquake, and fire before, okay? That's Exodus 19, Deuteronomy 4, and 1 Kings 18 when Elijah calls down fire from heaven. So the Lord had appeared in fire, earthquake, and wind before. 
but he was giving Elijah access on the other side of a wilderness journey to a level of intimacy that was so close, even a whisper in silence was audible. Okay? I'm almost done. Just hang with me, okay? He was giving Elijah on the other side of the wilderness journey access to a level of intimacy that even the silence was audible to Elijah. That's what Scripture says. It says, there was the sound of sheer silence when Elijah heard it. Heard what? It was silence. Hello? There's a sound of silence. Elijah is so close to Yahweh that even the silence in that moment is audible. And when he does it, he hides his face knowing the Lord is about to show up. Old covenant. Okay? Today, we could let glory flow. Right? But in the Old Covenant, if he had looked on the glory of Yahweh, dead. Ironically, that's what he wanted. So maybe he should have just, just gazed and left. But anyway. And then the Lord asked him. I'm almost done. Daniel, can you go ahead and come up here? Just back the volume down a little bit. Thanks, dude. The Lord asked him again, second time. What are you doing here, Elijah? The second time, post the Lord showing up in a whisper was him saying, you were wrong the first time, so let me ask you again. Okay? Remember the first time in Scripture, I know, I know it's, I've already been going for an hour, it's cool. The first time in Scripture, before the encounter, he hears the word of the Lord that says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah responds with all this craziness before chapter 18 and all that stuff. After the silence, the Lord says, not... Elijah, it's me. Guess what? This is what's about to happen, all that stuff. After the silence, the Lord shows up and he says, So, what are you doing here, Elijah? Yet Elijah answers by talking about the past. Do you hear this? Every time, both times the Lord says, What are you doing here? Elijah starts talking about the past. Josh, why are, why are you still having issues with the secret place? Well, because when I was growing up, I dealt with this, and I dealt with this, and then last year this happened, and right now I'm going through this, and all that stuff. Elijah starts talking about his past. Well, this is what happened. They've torn down your altars. They've done all this. It's caused me to be depressed. It's caused me to be suicidal. Lord, don't, you don't understand. I'm the only one left. Yahweh answers him by 100% talking about the future. He doesn't say, you know what? You're right. We're going to get those bad boys. You know what he says? Go back the way you came. He literally says, Go back the way you came and be a father to a generation that will ultimately host a double portion of your anointing. Elisha, the one that he says, Go anoint as prophet in your place. Which, by the way, that is not normal. Prophets didn't typically anoint prophets to come behind them. That was not a normal thing. So this is a, a very exclusive thing to Elijah. 
So he tells Elijah, I want you to go anoint Elisha. If you read through the end of 1 Kings and go into 2 Kings, we see that Elijah is about to be called up in a whirlwind to never taste death, enter into the heavenly realm with Yahweh. And when he does, he tells Elisha, he says, If you're with me when the Lord takes me up and you take up my mantle, you'll have a double portion because that's what Elijah, Elisha asked for. So he says, go back the way you came, be a father to a generation that will host a double portion of what you have. It took a journey through the wilderness of undoing to hear the whispers that he should have been hearing had he not allowed himself to be moved by circumstance. However, Yahweh is so kind that he'll allow you to face the parts of you still holding you back so that you can step into a future of possibility. For years I read this, and then I'm, I'm, I'm done. For years I read, what are you doing here, Elijah, as a negative. In other words, I read this as him saying, why are you here? For years. Like a negative, like, hey, like, what are you, what are you doing here? Until the Lord, one morning... I guess this was last week, I was reading through this, and he began to show me, he wasn't saying negatively, Elijah, why are you here? He was saying, Elijah, why are you here? He wasn't saying, Elijah, what have you done to get here? He was saying, Elijah, who are you and where are you going? What, what are you doing here? And Elijah starts talking about the past. He's like, no, 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 that's not what I said. That's not what I said. I need you to know what you're doing here. You encountered the presence of the Lord that no one up till that point in history had encountered. Such a closeness that he heard what Moses never heard from the same mountain. God spoke audibly and in a big cloud of smoke and fire and all that stuff to Moses. He shows Elijah all of the same stuff that he showed up to Moses in wasn't in that stuff. And then when all that stuff fades away, there's the sound of complete silence. And the frequency of silence causes Elijah to know the Lord is in this place. So he set out from there and found Elisha, son of of Shaphat, who was plowing. Oh, man. There were 12 yoke of oxen ahead of him, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle over him. He left the oxen, ran after Elijah, and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. Then Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? Okay, what did, what did the Lord tell Elijah? Go back the way you came. He shows up to Elisha and now speaks the same word of the Lord to Elisha that the Lord had spoken to him. Go back again, for what have I done to you? 
Verse 21, he returned from following him. He took the yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. Using the equipment from the oxen, he boiled their flesh and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out and followed Elijah and became his servant. Let me point out two things real quick, and then we're just going to take some time and play a little bit, and we're going to do worship at the end. Um, it's only 11.20, so surprise. Um, Elijah gets called to anoint Haziel, Jehu, and Elisha. Elisha is third on the list, but immediately goes to anoint a son first. Elijah has gone from a voice to a king to a father to a son. What was he doing in 17 and 18? Arguing with Ahab, the king. What was he doing at the end of 19? Finding a son. He leaves the mountain of the Lord and doesn't go back to Ahab and say, I've just spoke with the Lord. Guess what? You're doomed. He leaves the mountain and he says, I got to go find legacy. You want to hear something even better? Elijah never anoints Haziel and Jehu. What did the Lord tell him? He said, I want you to go anoint Haziel. I want you to anoint Jehu. And then I want you to anoint Elisha. Elisha leaves. He anoints Elisha. Elijah leaves. He anoints Elisha and never says one word to Haziel or Jehu. So, so man, super disobedient, right? Elijah never anoints Haziel or Jehu. He only ever anoints Elisha. But Elisha does anoint Haziel and Jehu both. So did Elijah fail? Did Abraham fail when he was promised a land that he never owned an acre of, but his legacy did? Elijah knew if the intimacy he had, thus the fruit he had with Yahweh, could become generational the right people would be king. In other words, if he could let this flame last beyond a generation, the kings will take care of themselves. All of us have a calling on our lives, 100%. The most effective way that you can achieve the calling on your life is letting Yahweh deal with the pieces of you that are still moved by the world around you and anchor you in the world within you. Do you think Jesus said to himself ever, I really need to go make sure I do this, 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 and this to fulfill my calling? Do, I mean, do you think Jesus ever sat down and said, you know what, today I need to go do this, I need to go do this, I need to go do this, because I know my calling, and this is what I really need to do to make sure my calling gets done. If he did, we don't have scripture of it, and I don't believe he did. I don't believe Jesus ever thought twice about his calling. He didn't have to. 
His calling was an inheritance for who he was. Yahweh will take care of the calling, but I'm just going to enjoy this intimacy I got. And so he's walking through town. People touch him. People touch the hem of his garment. They're instantly healed. He's not even thinking about it. People come up to him. Hey, uh, my daughter, she's, she's got all these demons. Blah, blah, blah. Can you come up? Sure. Speaks the word. But it's effortless for Jesus. Why is it effortless, effortless for Jesus? Not because he's the Messiah and, you know, he's got this greater thing that all of us have. He loved us enough to give us the same thing he had, the Holy Spirit, right? So why is Jesus doing things effortlessly that we expend a lot of effort not really doing that great? Because day in and day out and day in and day out, he was tending the flame that 120 would inherit in an upper room after 10 days of a wilderness dying of everything that they had left so that they could take this to the ends of the world. He was tending the flame of the Holy Spirit that the next generation would be hosting. There are two pieces to this chapter, and this is it. There's Elijah becoming rooted, and then there's Elisha leaving everything and cutting all ties to normality. He burned his equipment and he slaughtered his oxen. Why did he do that? There, it was impossible for Elisha to return to life as it was before because he had just destroyed everything that was part of his life before. So when we're born again, a lot of us like to hang on to stuff just in case. Or when we're called into something, a lot of us like to hang on to stuff just in case it doesn't work out. And what Elijah tells Elisha to do is he says, Elijah, hey, let me go tell my mom and dad bye and take care of all my stuff, and then I'll come follow you. And Elijah says, no, 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 try again. So Elisha goes back, he kills all the oxen, he tears up all the wood, burns it all, and then says, bye, and leaves. And you know what he inherits? The double portion. Why? Because he had no ties to normality. Now, here's where this gets interesting. This is a witness. This story is a witness of how one generation who finishes well can lead to another generation who actually starts well. What if there was a generation that 20 or 30 years into it didn't have to say, man, I grew up like this, but the Lord is correcting it now. What if there was a generation that from the very beginning could just grow up in this and never know anything else? That's what makes me excited about Theo and my daughter and all the other kids that are growing up in this is they're not going to have to grow up and say, you know, we were taught this, but we'll just have to start over, start from scratch. We're the foundation. They ain't the foundation, they're the studs. Because we will become the foundation. So they're not sitting around asking, well, why isn't that person being healed? And why is that person being healed? And why isn't that person being saved? And why is that megachurch still doing that? And why are they still doing that? Because I pro- none of that will exist anymore. Hear the word of the Lord. It's, none of it will. They're going to grow up saying, hey, so Lexington Medical Center, empty. They want to give us the building. What do y'all think we should do with it? Right? Why? 
because the glory of the Lord will begin covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. As natural as it is for the waters to be wet will be as natural as it is for glory to cover us. Is water wet? Yes. Are we glorious? We will be. We're close. Some of us are there. But that, that's where we're trending. We don't hardly hear, this is my last two notes, we don't hardly hear anything from Elijah or about Elijah the rest of Scripture until he's taken up and Elisha picks up his mantle. Enoch and Elijah were both taken without tasting death, yet compared to all the other heroes, these are the least talked about in Scripture. We know a lot about David. We know a lot about Abraham. We know a lot about Isaac and Jacob. They all died. And we, have an account. we know a lot about Moses. Died. Joshua. Died. You know what we don't know a lot about? Enoch. You know what we don't know a lot about? Really, Elijah. That's three chapters. And then we don't see him again until he's taken and Elisha picks it up. And then we know a lot about Elisha. Who dies? In Scripture, we get an account of what people did. Could it be that Enoch and Elijah never tasted death because they were more concerned with communion than calling? Or could it be that they changed their perspective on their calling altogether to be defined as communion. We, we know two verses, I believe. It may be one, but uh, at most two verses about Enoch. That's all we know. James, I believe, mentions him in chapter 4 or 5. Outside of that, we don't know a lot about Enoch. Yet, he was so intimate with God that God just took him one day. I, I'm going to stretch a little bit. I believe we would know a lot about Enoch if he did a lot. I believe the reason we don't know a lot about Enoch is because he spent his whole life in communion. Just like Jesus. The Gospels give us a great account of everything Jesus did. We don't have a great account of the intimacy he had with the Father. We just don't. Right? Yet... John, at the end of his gospel, says, if we wrote everything that he did, the books of the world wouldn't be able to contain it. They got a lot about what he did. So John, I believe, what John is talking about is encounters. And you've got to remember, script, and I'm, a, I'm not going to get too theological, but Scripture, the New Testament was written so that thousands of years later, we could read their writings and know Jesus was who he said he was and is who he said he is. Therefore, when they're writing these Gospels, they're making sure they get everything about the miracles and everything about the casting out demons and everything about hugging lepers. But the one thing that they don't write a lot about is the thing that they think, I believe, they think as they're writing this, people aren't going to look at it and say, oh yeah, he's the Messiah because he spent 10 hours a day with the Lord. 
Because everybody in that day did that. That wasn't some abnormal thing. That's what they did. That was their life. But I'm, I'm, I'm feeling the Lord pulling us into something that instead of seeing how can we do what Jesus did, maybe he's pulling us into a place that says, how can we be who Jesus was? Because if we could be who Jesus was, we would do what Jesus did. There's been a lot of movements that have talked about miracle signs and wonders and healings. There's not been very, very many movements that have been all about son and daughter. And we haven't seen a lot of miracle signs and wonders and healings. It's not because we haven't aimed at it. I believe it's because we have aimed at it rather than the more excellent way, which is who we are. And who we are then begin to inherit all the stuff that inheritors of the kingdom of God receive as gifts. Miracles are not something you work for. Miracles are gifts that God gives his kids. So I'm going to be a kid and then receive. He says, ask and you shall receive. Not do and you shall receive. Ask and you shall receive. How can you ask? By boldly approaching the throne of grace. How can you boldly approach the throne of grace? By being one with Jesus the Messiah. What does it mean to be one with Jesus the Messiah? It means that you can call out Abba, Father. Our Father. Our Papa in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information on Dream Church or to give, visit dreamcolumbia.com. We hope you have a great week.